of parents' groans over their wicked children, sermons on Psalm 17, verse 25, published for the benefit of all, but especially of good parents and their children, by Edward Lawrence, 1681. To my beloved children, my dear children, I am sensible of my unworthiness and unfitness to be seen in print. It is now above twenty years since, by the power and goodness of God, I was unexpectedly rescued from the jaws of death, which was the reason I then published that little book called Christ's Power Over Bodily Diseases. And I had never been the author of a book of this title, had not two of you, but especially one, made me the father of fools. I shall here say no more particularly to you too, but that sound repentance and the fruits of it in a settled reformation of life will yet be your glory and my joy. But if you hate to be reformed, which God forbid I shall mourn till I die for the loss of children, but you will be tormented forever for the loss of God. Children, I have not of the things of this world to leave you. I acknowledge the wisdom of God and not judging me fit to be entrusted with these things, but it's enough for us if we can call God our own, though we cannot call the riches of the world our own. Some of you do with comfort remember how we often worship God together in singing with delight those words in Psalm 37 verse 16 to 20. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. I here leave you this letter of the counsel and advice of your aged and loving and faithful father, who sees death looking him and you in the face, and beholds a judge before the door. This will speak to you when death has silenced me, and it speaks the same things which God and Christ in your own conscience speak to you, and it speaks to you as it were in the hearing of the world. 1. Put a true value on your being, for you cannot love God and Christ if you do not love yourselves. You are of that kind of creatures who are made much higher than all other visible creatures, and but a little lower than the angels. You are capable to know and choose and love and to light in God, and to speak of Him and to entertain yourselves continually with Him. You are of those creatures in whose happiness God glorifies all His perfection. He made this world for man. He commanded his only begotten son to sacrifice himself for a man and sent him to be born and to live and die and to rise again and to intercede in heaven for man. He has revealed all the truths of the Christian religion for the good of man and therefore you should think it greater madness to sell your precious souls and bodies to the devil and your lusts for the short and dirty pleasure of sin than to sell a purse of gold or a cabinet full of jewels for a bag of chaff or cherry stones, and should account it below you to give yourselves to any but to God. Number two, know that as your beings are great, so your happiness or misery will be very great. Riches or poverty, sickness or health, this present life or the death that deprives you of it, are things too little to make you blessed or miserable. All the curses of God or the blessings of the gospel will be upon you presently. And you can either live like men or like Christians, till you know what it is to be saved or damned, and what it is to lose or enjoy God. Number three, that you may escape the wrath and obtain the glory set before you, let it be your chief end and interest to know and honor and enjoy God. Use the creatures as his witnesses to testify and declare the being and glory of God to you. For God has not only made and appointed them to fill your hearts with food and gladness, but also that in the use of them you may fill and find and fill your souls with God. But especially behold the glory of God as he is presented to you in the mirror of the scriptures, that he may have that name in your hearts, which he has in his word. Present him to your souls as God over all blessed forever, that you may conclude that he who is so infinitely good is to be his own happiness is sufficient to make you happy, and that this God may be your eternal life and happiness, you must know and behold his glory in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and therefore behold his glory as a father of such a son, and as the Lord of such a servant. For Jesus Christ is the Lord's Christ, Luke 2, verse 26, Christ 
is God's 1 Corinthians 3.23 and executes his office as a mediator in obedience to the will and to the glory of the God the Father, whose glory you may behold in his calling him to such a high office and his accomplishing him for the execution of it and prospering him and making him successful in his whole work and giving him such a blessed seed and making him victorious over all of his enemies and in rewarding him for his great service and obedience so that according to the intent of the scriptures forenamed, you must labor to get such a sight of the glory of God shining upon you in the face of Jesus Christ, as will make an impression of his image in your souls, and therefore loathe and abhor sin, which is against the glory of God, and which is the only evil that can make you lose such a glorious God. And for this reason be convinced of the vanity of this world, which is but a poor thing when the glory of God shines on your souls. For you will be most blessed in him when this world shall be dissolved and passed away. And let us make Jesus Christ glorious and acceptable to you, whose office and work it is to redeem you from all sin and misery, and to make you blessed forever in the likeness and enjoyment of this glorious God. And let us also cause you to endeavor to fill all persons with the great name of God in Christ, that you may gain them all the hearts and love and service you can. And therefore, in all company, let God and Christ have your good word. Number four, know that to love and delight in God is the best employment for the days of your youth. God is much concerned for young persons. The Proverbs of Solomon are written to give to the young men knowledge and discretion. Proverbs 1 verse 4. And one great use of the word of God is to teach young men to cleanse their way. Psalm 119 verse 9. Young men and maidens and children are called upon to praise the name of the Lord. Psalm 148, 12 and 13. We find many mourning with holy Augustine that they loved God so late, but none complaining that they loved him too soon. As young as you are in heaven and hell, it's better to be a young child of God than a young child of the devil. Young saints are the glory of God, the fullness and accomplishment of Christ, the joy of angels, the security and support of religion, the crown of their parents and the blessing of their generation. Number five, fill your time with the fruits of the Spirit. See that your hearts be filled with grace and that your days be filled with fruit. Be always receiving Christ and resigning yourself to him. Feel your hearts continually laying hold on eternal life and live as if you were always running to heaven. Spend every day so that you may lie down in peace at night, that the Lord's day may be pleasant, death, gainful, and eternity glorious. Number six, improve God's ordinances of worship. Fill your vow of baptism always fresh and strong upon you. Feel the difference between the Lord's day and other days. See that the word preached be mixed with faith and craft it in your hearts, that it kill your sins, and reform your lives. Pray continually, and in that day see that you be with the spirits of children, with your Father in heaven. Let all your affairs pass through praying hearts, and reckon all your own which you sincerely pray for. Sing the Psalms, as those that make God your song and joy, and if you were sensible that you are in the gates of heaven, ready to enter therein, to join with that world of blessed angels and saints and admiring and praising God. When you come to the Lord's Supper, see all that is presented to you, receive all that is offered, and do all that is commanded of you. Number seven, be faithful to the truth and then you need not be afraid of yourselves or of any other. This is your greatest safety and you may then feel the ground firm under you and may say with David in Psalm 26, verse 12, My foot stands in an even place. And if you are called to suffer, choose it rather than sin. And saying man cannot kill your souls, let not to fear them make you destroy them yourselves. Number eight, decline evil company. Do not go with them to hell, who will not go with you to heaven. But if you are called into such company, fill yourselves with God while you are with them and carry it as those that are sensible that there is a God in the place. Exercise those graces which are contrary to and do condemn their sins. Be humble with the proud, meek with the angry, loving 
with the malicious, that they may be reproved by your graces, and that you may not be defiled by their sins. Number 9. Labor to be a blessing to all persons. Let men see that in you for which they may have cause to love and praise God. Bear all wrongs, but do none. Do it in your lives to make all persons holy and joyful, but make none sinful, angry, or sad. Forgive all, but let none have need to forgive you. Exercise their love, but do not by your sins exercise their patience. Give all cause to bless God for you, but give not any cause to any to wish it never known you. Number 10. Dread Debt Do not unnecessarily bring yourselves under the bondage of debtors. Look upon it as more just and honorable to beg than to borrow. If you're not likely to pay except in that case you plainly acquaint the lender with your condition, that you may know what adventure he makes. And when you are able, pay seasonably, fully, and thankfully. I would have none to lend to any children of mine without first advising with me, except they be in a hopeful way of trade. And my advice to such of you is that you be afraid of being too much trusted, for it's often seen that they who go to the length of their credit are injurious to others and prove bankrupts themselves. Number 11. Abhor Lying this is a sin which is an abomination to the Lord, whom you should always please. It's contrary to the divine nature which is in everyone that is born of God, Ephesians 4, verse 24. It's an abuse of your tongues, which should be your glory. For the use of your tongues is to express your minds, but in a lie your minds and thoughts do contradict your words. It's a wrong to others whom you would have believe you. When you do not believe yourselves, it makes you unfit for human society. For who will converse with those whom they cannot believe? You hereby rot your names. For a liar is one of the worst characters of the devil of hell. You destroy your bodies and souls forever. For all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Number 12. Do not dare to steal. Take nothing from any person but what you can say you received it from the hand of God, and can praise him for it, and can comfortably beg his blessing upon it. Kill those lusts which you would feed with the fruit of other men's labors. Consider that when you were tempted to this sin of theft, you were tempted to bring a curse on your estates and persons, to thrust a dagger into your father's heart, and to hasten yourselves to an untimely and shameful death and a torment in eternity. Number 13. Deride and jeer no persons. Let your jests be harmless, and make not yourselves the fools of your company. But whilst you are cheerful as men and women, lose not the savor of Christians. Do not frequent taverns or alehouses. Go not into such places, but when God calls you, stay no longer than he will stay with you, and do nothing there but what ye shall have cause to bless God for when you come away. Be thankful to them who have showed mercy and kindness to me and you. Pray for them. Inquire how it is with their posterity, and as you are capable, do them good. Remember Proverbs 27 verse 10. Your own friend and your father's friend do not forsake. Forgive all that have done me wrong, and pray to God not to visit it on them or their posterity. You know, I have had a hard measure from some, and I know that I have stood before God to speak good for them, and to turn away his wrath from them. As for you, did are or may be hereafter set up for yourselves in a way of trade, my counsel to you is this, see that your persons be upright with God, that you may have a scripture right to the promises of the life that now is, and of that which is to come which is to be preferred before the best estate in the world. Pray to God for his blessing, and see every customer is sent from him, and love them as yourselves. Let all that deal with you have cause to say that they deal with the members of Jesus Christ. And for you that are or may be apprentices, my counsel and command to you is this. Let those scriptures dwell in your hearts which teach you your duty and encourage you in this. Commit them to memory and bless God that he condescends to be a teacher of servants. Be content with your present condition, which may be the easiest time of your whole age. Be not apt to find fault, 
for that will make you uneasy to yourselves and to the family. Let all your words and looks and actions be such as witness that you do in your hearts honor your master and mistresses in Christ and them. Bear correction patiently, though you be wronged. The sufferings of Christ are set before you as a pattern herein. Pray daily for your masters and their families, for you ought to improve all your interest in God for their good. Pray to God to fit you for your calling. Did he who teaches a husband men to plow and sow, Isaiah 28:26, may teach you herein. To conclude, love one another according to all the obligations that are upon you, but never put it in the power of any one to undo the other. Kill all lustings after the honors or riches or pleasures of the world. Remember I've told you that as love fulfills all the law of God, so lust fulfills the law of the devil. I will say no more. Choose him for your father that cannot die. And as Robert Bolton said to his children, So say to you, Do not dare to meet me at the day of judgment in an unregenerate state. June 6, 1681 Your loving and faithful father, Edward Lawrence. To all Christian parents, it is not only for the sake of myself and children, but also for the sake of you and yours that I have published this little book, but especially out of respect to the glory of God, that we may leave a seed to bless him in this world, when we are glorifying him in a better world. It will cost you but a little money to buy it, and but a little time for you and your children to read it. If those of you who are able to give to every one of your children one of these books, and to likewise bestow some of them upon the children of the poor. This will be no advantage to me, and when you come to give your account, will be no loss to you. I am a lover of children, and have often lifted up my heart in prayer to God for them, where I have seen them. I wish this may be a blessing to you and them. Pray that you may leave that religion which came originally from the Father of Jesus Christ and is revealed to us in the scriptures to our posterity, and that they may have hearts to live according to the rules and principles of it more than we have done. Farewell, your servant for Jesus' sake, Edward Lawrence. June 6, 1681 A parent's groans over their wicked children, Proverbs 17, verse 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father, and bitterness to her that bear him. It is one great argument to the vanity of this world that we may be spoiled of all that is dear to us under the sun by the sins of other men. A common and sad example of this is that the comforts of godly parents here are very much at the will and pleasure of their own children. For had a good man all other delights that the creatures can yield, and did wash his steps in butter, and dip his foot in oil, Nay, suppose he had all the pleasures of godliness that are ordinarily attained in this life. Yet, he'll be a man of sorrow, if a wicked child make him the father of a fool. This doleful case is presented to us in this text, which I have chosen for the subject of this discourse, that I may duly affect my own and others' hearts with this great calamity. In the text, two things are clearly set before us. One. A case taken for granted, and that is that godly parents of often foolish children. Number two, the misery of that case is expressed. That is, that such children are a grief to their fathers, and bitterness to the mothers that bear them. The explanation of the text, a foolish son, that is, a wicked and ungodly son or daughter, for it's usual in this book of the Proverbs that both sexes are intended when but one is expressed. Wicked children think themselves wise, wiser than their parents or masters or ministers. For vain man would be wise, though he be like a wild ass's colt. Job 11.12 But all the devil's children are fools, for he that will obey and imitate the devil, who is a murderer of all of his own children and will not obey and imitate Christ, who is the Redeemer and Savior of all of his children. I may say of him in the words of a wise woman, A fool is his name, and folly is with him. He is a grief to his father. By father and mother in the text, I understand a godly father and mother. 
who are most affected with this case, is a grief. Some render the word anger or indignation, and both grief and anger are intended. For a foolish son makes his father both angry and sad, and bitterness to her that bear him, that is, to his good mother, called her that bear him, to aggravate the mother's misery and the child's sin. He cannot but torment the good mother to think that she did so with so much sickness and pain and sorrow bear and bring forth one that proves a child of the devil and is like to be a firebrand of hell. And it's a great aggravation of the child's sins to embitter the life of her that was a means of life to him and to hasten that womb to the worms, which with such pains and throes brought him out into the world. The text will further be opened in the following discourse, which I shall reduce to the three heads. First, that it is ordinary for godly parents to have wicked and ungodly children. Secondly, that this is a very great calamity to these godly parents. Third, application. It is ordinary for godly parents to have wicked and ungodly children. This is implied in the text. And I may say of this what Solomon speaks of another case in Ecclesiastes 6 verse 1. It is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. In the handling of this I shall, one, give some characters of godly parents. Number two, some characters of ungodly children. Number three, I shall give you several instances for the confirmation of it. I shall only give you two main characters of godly parents. First, they are conscientiously careful for their preservation. Secondly, for the eternal happiness and salvation of their children. Number one, they are consciously careful for the preservation of the natural lives of their children. As trees support and feed the branches that grow out of themselves, and as it's natural to the brutes to defend and keep their own young, so nature itself teaches and inclines parents to defend and preserve and provide for the fruits of their own bodies, and for this end, to supply them with food, raiment, and medicine, and to fit them for callings, and seasonably to provide for them. Meet yoke fellows in every way to take care that they neither perish or be made miserable, but godly parents, in whom natural affections are sanctified and improved by grace, do all these out of a principle of godliness as persons who have to do with God herein. They do it in a sense of their dependence on God and pray for daily bread to feed their children and are thankful when they feel it come warm from their Father in heaven. They do it in obedience and faithfulness to God and with the design that their children may live to be born of God and to be a blessing to this world and be blessed in the other world. It's for those unnatural monsters who feed their lusts with that which should maintain their children. They're so far from being godly parents that they are worse than infidels and not providing for their families. And are like the devil, who, as I said, is a murderer of his own children. Number two, they're conscientiously careful for the eternal happiness and salvation of their children for their natural affections being now sanctified to work in them for the spiritual good and happiness of their children. Proverbs 4, 3, 4, and 5. I was my father's son, tender, and only beloved in the sight of my mother. Solomon was his father and mother's darling. Their love did outrun exceedingly upon his son. And he tells us which way their love and kindness was expressed. He taught me also and said unto me, Get wisdom, get understanding. He tells us also how the affections of his good mother worked. Proverbs 31, 2 and 3. What, my son, and what, the son of my womb, and what, the son of my vows? The son of her womb was the son of her vows, whom she had devoted to God. Those parents who have known both states, the state of wrath and the state of grace, have experimentally felt what it is to pass from death to life and from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God, cannot but desire that the same change be wrought upon their children, and as they love themselves with a holy love, 
they take God for the eternal life and happiness, and Christ for their Redeemer to redeem them from all evil and to bring them to this happiness and a spirit for their sanctifier to fit them for this happiness. So they that love their children with this holy love will desire and endeavor that they be partakers with them of the same happiness. Number two, I proceed to give you three characters of ungodly children. First, here such children as will not be subject to the authority of their parents. The reverence of children to their parents is so incorporated into the whole body of religion that all religion is in vain without it. This fully appears in Leviticus 19, verse 3. You shall fear every man his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Observe this, duty is here joined with keeping the Lord's Sabbath, wherein religion did always very much consist. But it's often seen that disobedient children are great profaners of the Lord's day. They are always bad, but usually worst on that day. And some of them may remember that their first breaking out into scandalous sins was on the Lord's day. We are here further taught that this duty of reverence to parents is joined with all religion to God. For, God says, in effect, it's in vain for any to pretend to call me their Lord and their God if they do not fear their parents. And therefore, wicked children are numbered amongst the most flagitious and worst sinners. Ezekiel 22 verse 7 And you have they set light by father and mother. They vilified and despised them, and made nothing of them. Such break all the bonds of religion, and many hasten through a shameful and untimely death into a dreadful and tormenting eternity, whose wickedness first began in scorning and despising their parents. Number two, dare such children as will not obey the commands of their parents. The godly commands of parents are the means which God has appointed and does often bless to make the children godly. Genesis 18 verse 19. I know. Abraham, did he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. And God commands all children to obey all the holy and lawful commands of their parents. Ephesians 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. It is the parents' right that their children should obey them, and it's God's right that they should obey them and the Lord. And this, saith the Apostle in Colossians 3, verse 21, is well-pleasing to the Lord, so that those children do neither fear provoking God, nor care to please Him, who will not obey their parents, and so are children of their parents' sorrow, and of God's wrath. Number three, dear such children as are unthankful to their parents, the Apostle tells us in 1 Timothy 5, verse 4, that it is good and acceptable before God for children to requite their parents. And they have great things for which they should labor to requite their godly parents, namely, for all their care and cost and pains to keep them alive, and for all their diligence and faithfulness and endeavoring to make them blessed. And all the requital which the poor parents desire is that their children would but love and obey God, and not damn themselves. But these ungodly children are so far from requiting them that like so many dogs and lions they tear in pieces the hearts and bowels of their tender parents. Now in the third place I come to confirm this, that it's ordinary for godly parents to have ungodly children. And for this end I shall first give you some instances recorded in scripture. And secondly, I shall instance in several cases wherein this is verified. I shall only give you four instances recorded in scripture for the confirmation hereof. Instance is in Adam and Eve. These were both godly parents and therefore in that first evangelical promise of Genesis 3 verse 15. We have notice of the two great parties in the world. The one was a woman and her seed and the other the serpent, and his seed, and of the enmity between them. And though there is only mention made of the woman, yet the man is also included, so that by the woman and her seed we are to understand Adam and Eve, and Christ, and his church, and by the serpent and his seed are meant the devils, 
and all the devil's children. And for as much as we find Adam and Eve had the same party with Christ and his church, and in enmity with the devil and his seed, we conclude them to be godly persons and godly parents. Moreover, we find in Genesis 4 that they brought up their children in that religion, and to worship God in use of those ordinances which he had then instituted as the means of their salvation. These two were the first fruits of Christ, the first persons that ever entered into the covenant of grace. And Christ might say to them as Jacob said to Reuben in Genesis 49 verse 3, You are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. At first the whole church of God was only these two persons, and yet these are the parents of that cursed and bloody Cain. And I shall observe three things in this history that render this case very doleful. 1. That Eve was so exceeding glad for the birth of Cain. Some are of opinion that she thought she had brought forth the promised Messiah, and that made her break out with joy, saying in Genesis 4, 1, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And yet this is he of whom the apostle speaks in 1 John 3, verse 12. He was of that wicked one, meaning the devil. This is a common case. The parents are exceedingly glad for the birth of a child and call their friends and neighbors to rejoice with them. And yet that sweet and pleasant babe proves the greatest torment to their parents whichever they met with in their whole age. Number two, consider his crime. He barbarously murdered his own brother, Genesis 4.8. Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. He considered not how this would grieve the heart of his good father and mother, nor that he was the elder brother and therefore ought to have nourished the life of the younger and have been a pattern of holiness and love to him. Neither did he consider that he hated and murdered not only a brother but also a holy child of God and for that which he ought to have honored and loved him. Because his brother's works were righteous, and he considered not how his brother's blood cried God for vengeance against him. No bonds or arguments or reasons will prevail with ungodly children. Number three, consider the dreadful judgment of God both upon himself and his posterity. God's judgment on his soul was so dreadful that he desperately cries out, Genesis 4 verse 13, mine iniquity is greater than that, it may be forgiven. He was cast out of the favor of God, excommunicated from the church, and all his posterity were excluded from communion therewith. They are called the sons and daughters of men, in opposition to the sons of God, and at last all perish in a deluge of waters. And yet, I say, this bloody and cursed monster was a son the eldest son of the two first godly parents that ever were in the world. Second example, instance, is in Noah. The first instance was in the first godly man in the old world, as the ages before the flood are called, Second Peter 2, 5. This instance is in the best man in the new world after the flood. This Noah has a great character in the scriptures. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, when all the earth was deboshed and corrupt. Yet, then was Noah just and upright, and walked with God. It's he that is called in Second Peter 2, 5, a preacher of righteousness. It is he that was so much in the favor of God that he and his family were singled out to be preserved in the ark. When all the world besides were drowned and perished in the waters, Yet, this holy Noah was the father of that wicked Ham, whom all the waters of Noah, as the scriptures call that deluge, were not effectual to cure of his wickedness. But he went a wicked man into the ark, and he came wicked out. Insomuch that his own holy father was inspired by a prophetical spirit to curse both his son and posterity. And the crime mentioned in Genesis 9, 22 and 25 was his irreverence and disrespect to his father. Third instance is in Isaac, that holy patriarch, who has so greatly feared God that his son Jacob gives God that honorable name in Genesis 31 verse 42, the fear of Isaac, meaning the God whom Isaac feared. Yet he and that good mother Rebekah were the parents of a wicked Esau, whom God is said to hate. Romans 9 verse 13. 
I know we read in Genesis 25:28 that Isaac loved Esau, but we see that children may be greatly beloved of their parents and yet abhorred and cursed of God. Fourth instance, says in David, called a man after God's own heart, whom God raised up to be king of Israel. He was a penman of a considerable part of the Holy Scriptures, such an eminent type of Christ that Christ himself is often called David in Scripture. Yet, he was the tender father of that wicked Absalom, who bloodily murdered his brother Amnon, and miserably and shamefully died in treason and rebellion against his royal father, whose bitter lamentation is yet in our ears. Second Samuel 18, verse 33. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I died for you, Absalom, my son, my son. Secondly, I shall further instance in four cases wherein this is often verified. 1. Those children who are most beloved of their parents do often prove the most wicked children. Absalom was David's darling, insomuch that although he set his whole kingdom in a flame and constrained his father to fly for his life, yet, when David sent out his army to suppress that rebellion, he gives this charge to his commanders. In the audience of the soldiers, 2 Samuel 18.5, deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And it often happens that the children of most of their parents love and delight, and whose looks and talk they are most taken with, and whom they are most apt to boast of, and are most unwilling to part with, and in whom they promise themselves most content and pleasure, to often prove the greatest scourge and torment to their parents. For it is not the love of the godly parents, but the love of God that makes children holy and happy. Number two. This is often a sad case of some holy ministers of the word. I know it's a popish and peevish humor in some to say the minister's children never do well. Indeed, everything a ministers is most exposed to the observation of people, and therefore the wickedness of their children is most observed and talked of. But the holy, learned, and every way prosperous and blessed seed of a number of godly ministers is sufficient to confute and shame the ignorance of people in this. And yet, it is true that many godly ministers in all ages have groaned under this sad calamity. Eli was a holy priest of God, but his two sons were devils incarnate, monsters of men, scandalous, sacrilegious and adulterous sons of Belial, as appears in 1 Samuel 2. And this is no rare thing, that to prayers, studies, sermons, Examples of many good ministers are often made successful to bring others to heaven when they can by no means restrain their own children from running to hell, and their own children make them do the work of their ministry with grief. But often the children of drunkards, worldlings, and whoremongers will be their crown and glory in the day of the Lord Jesus. Number three, this is often true when both parents are godly. Indeed, when either father or mother is wicked, no marvel if the children be hardened into their sins by their examples, but it's usually seen that when children are both the instruction of the father and also the love of the mother, and when they cry to all the ministers and Christians about them to help them by their prayers and counsels to save their children, yet all do not prevail. But the Holy Father and Mother can scarce keep one another's hearts from being broken by their stubborn and disobedient children. Number four. The children of godly parents often prove wicked when God does sanctify and bless and save the children of ungodly parents. We see sometimes trees of righteousness growing in the families of the wicked when briars and thorns grow up in the families of the righteous. We read in Matthew 1 that Ahaz, a very wicked king, begat holy Hezekiah, and good Hezekiah begat Manasseh who is an idolater of the highest rate, a witch, and such a bloody murderer that the chronicle of his reign tells us in Second Kings 21 verse 16, he shed innocent blood very much, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, though afterwards he is set forth to be the greatest pattern of the grace of God in the Old Testament, as Paul is in the New Testament. 
It is no new sight to see children of the best saints in the way to hell, and children of atheists and persecutors in the way to heaven. Nay, though some parents do persecute their own children for loving and fearing God, yet they cannot debauch them when all endeavors of godly parents will not prevail to make their children hate sin and love God. And this is one of the saddest instances of the great mystery of providence mentioned in Ecclesiastes 8 verse 14. There, the just man to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. Number two, it is very great calamity to godly parents to have wicked and ungodly children. A foolish son, the text says. It's a grief to his father and bitterness to her to bear him. To the same purpose as that in Proverbs 17:21, He that begets a fool does it to his sorrow, and a father of a fool has no joy. A foolish son damns all his joy. In Proverbs 19, verse 13, A foolish son is the calamity of his father. I shall set forth the greatness of the trouble by these eight particulars. One by the mentor of these parents' grief, too, by the passions that this calamity moves and affects. Number three, by comparing this with other afflictions and showing how this exceeds them. Number four, by showing that this makes these parents do all their work with grief and sorrow. Number five, by showing that this embitters all their other comforts. Number six, by the sad concomitants of it. Number seven, by the several aggravations of it. And number eight, by instancing in some cases wherein this calamity is more grievous. First, the manner of these parents' grief is very sad. It appears in these seven things. One, that their children are so defiled and debauched with sin, which is so loathsome to these holy parents. It vexed the righteous soul of Lot to see and hear the filthy conversation of the beastly sodomites. How grievous and it must be to these godly parents to see and hear the filthiness of their own dear children. It is a grievous thing to a man that loves God and godliness and souls to see a drunkard staggering in the streets or to hear any man blaspheming and reproaching his maker and redeemer. But none can tell but those that feel it what a sad spectacle it is to sober and godly parents to see their own children drunk, or how it torments them to hear their own children lying and blaspheming God and his saints. Number two, that their children are the children of the devil, and under the power of Satan, and ridden by him, and carried captive by him at his will. It was a lamentable case of that good mother who came to Christ, saying in Matthew 15, verse 22, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil, yet this was not her daughter's sin, but only her great affliction. But how doleful is it to those parents who have renounced the devil themselves and live in continual warfare with them, to see the hearts and mouths and lives of the children whom they have devoted to God, filled, and possessed with the devil, whose children they are and whose lusts they will do. If the devil tempt the parents, their own graces will resist and overcome his temptations, but they cannot secure their children from being overcome and from falling into the condemnation of the devil. But with sad hearts, see the lion of hell running away with the lambs of their flock and cannot recover them. Number three, that your children are under the wrath and curse of God. It did sadly affect the father of that lunatic son mentioned in Matthew 17 verse 15 to see his son fall oft into the fire and oft into the water. How would he screech at such a sight and cry, Ah, oh, my dear child will be burnt. My child will be drowned, but much more terrible is it to these parents who know the terrors of the Lord, to know that their children have cut off the intel of the covenant of grace and are every moment ready to fall into the hands of the living God. When such parents are with faith reading the curses of God's law, how does it cut them to the heart to think 
that they are then reading their children's doom. Number four, that your children are under those black characters which are given in scripture to ungodly men. For the faith of these parents makes all persons have that name in their hearts which they have in the word. And as God is no respecter of persons, so faith, so far as it prevails, respects not the persons of any, no, not of a man's own children, but because they are more under their notice and observation than others, and because they are more concerned for them, for the deeper impressions do these characters make on their hearts, so that this is the misery of these parents, that while they look on person through the mirror of the scriptures, and see many to be the jewels and treasure and children and heirs of God, and the glorious bride and spouse of Christ, they must, and to judge their own wicked children, to be a generation of vipers and serpents and dogs and swine and lions and bears and wolves, as God called them in his word. Number five. Did the anger and displeasure of God appear so much against these good parents in this? Indeed, the sense of their own folly must make them justify God in a sharp correction, and cause them to say with Solomon in Proverbs 26, verse 3, As it is fit, that there should be a whip for the horse, and a bridle for the ass, so is it that there should be a rod for the fool's back. But this is very grievous that God should correct them with a scourge made of their own bowels, and should chasten a blessed father with a cursed child. His holy anger must be acknowledged in this, for when the child despises his father, God himself does justly spit in the father's face. Number six, the shame and disgrace which comes to them by this, Proverbs 19, verse 26, he that wastes his father and chases away his mother is a son that causes shame. Everyone will be ready to reflect upon their parents and to say, Surely these children were never taught to serve God, who do so sacrifice themselves to the service of the devil. Number seven, both parents are deeply affected for the trouble and misery that comes by this to one another. Their love too. And sympathy with one another makes a burden of both more uneasy. The good father is not only troubled with a wicked child, but also for the bitterness and sorrow of his wife. And the good mother is not only troubled with a wicked child, but also for the grief of her husband. The mother's heart bleeds to see the tears, and to hear the groans of the afflicted father, and cries out, Oh, what a child have I brought forth! It so much deprives me of the comfort of a loving husband, and it's like to break his heart, and to make me a desolate and disconsolate widow. The father mourns to see the tears and the sad countenance, and to hear the groans of the distressed mother, and is ready to cry out, Woe is me, that the child of my bowels is destroying the wife of my bosom. And... Yet these hard-hearted children are not affected herewith, but let the parents sigh, they will sing. Let the parents weep and mourn, they will rant and roar. And they care no more to break their parents' hearts than to break a tobacco pipe, and will not abate a lie or oath or cup to save the lives of their tender parents. Secondly, the greatness of this calamity appears by the passions and the parents which are moved and affected hereby. I shall only instance in three passions, fear, anger, and sorrow. Fear. This is a troublesome passion, and godly parents are never out of fear of their wicked children. They are afraid that everyone that knocks at the door, and at every post and every friend that comes to visit them, brings them some tidings of their disobedient children. I shall amplify this by instancing in three great evils, which such parents are greatly perplexed with the fear of. One, they're afraid, lest their children in the practice of some great sins. This is Job's fear. When his children were feasting together in Job 1, 5, Job said, It may be my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Their children are seldom out of their sight. But the good parents are in fear of this. They know their children are always exposed to the devil's temptations, and to the snares of the world, and to the allurements of evil company. 
and that their corrupt hearts are set to comply with all, and that they have provoked God to give them up to their own lusts. And therefore they are in continual fear lest these poor children are lying or swearing or cursing or whoring or drunk and defiling and debauching and destroying themselves and others. Number two, dear in fear, lest some heavy judgment of God will befall them in this life. And thus David, when his son Absalom was in the head of a high rebellion against his father, and a battle was to be fought with the rebels, was fearful lest his son should then perish in his sins. These parents know that their poor children are out of God's way, and his birds wandering from the nest, Proverbs 27.8, are exposed to all manner of danger. They know what the word threatens against them, and what fearful instances there are of the vengeance of God upon disobedient children, and therefore they are in fear, lest their sin should bring them to some untimely and shameful death. Number three. They are in fear of their eternal damnation. They are sensible that their children are children of wrath, and to live in those sins for which the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. And these parents believe what hell is, for his faith and the promises as a substance of things hoped for. So faith, as it believes the threatenings, is a substance of things feared. And therefore they cannot but tremble to think, the dear, dear lambs, whom they so tenderly nourished and cherished, are in danger every moment to be cast into the fire that is prepared for devils. Anger is another passion that is moved in godly parents with the wickedness of their children, and this is troublesome, for a man is never out of trouble whilst he is in anger, and the more the wills of these parents are bent to have their children godly, the more they displease and provoke to anger by their sins. They are angry to see them provoke that God whom they themselves are so careful to please, and to see them destroying their precious souls which they are laboring to save, and to see them waste those estates on their filthy lusts which they have got by their care and labor and prayers. They cannot but think of them with anger and speak of them with anger and look at them with anger. And thus their children, which should be their delight and pleasure, are a continual cross and vexation to them. Sorrow. They are deeply affected with grief and sorrow for the wickedness of their children. The parents' graces cause them to mourn for their children's sins. Their saving knowledge makes their hearts bleed to see their children scorn to despise that glory which they see in God and Christ. And whilst they by faith are feeding on Christ, it grieves them to see their children feeding themselves with the dirty pleasures of sin. Their love to God makes them groan. That their children love sin the worst evil, and hate God the chiefest good.